Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan, an Associate Professor of Medicine here at GW and Medical Director of the GW Center for Integrative Medicine, also founder and Executive Director of Access to Integrative Medicine Health Institute. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we're talking about death and dying with Delia Caramonti, MD, founder and CEO of the Institute for Integrative Palliative Medicine and host of the Integrative Palliative Podcast. Dr. Caramonti is a leader in an educator in the field of integrative palliative medicine, practicing and teaching this unique skill-based patient-centered style of medicine has fueled her passion to help other physicians to do the same. And Delia is also a long-term friend and a colleague and we are so happy that she's here today. Welcome to the podcast, Delia. Thank you so much for having me. So let's go right into it with what are the common misconceptions about palliative care and what is the reality? I'm so glad you asked this question because I want to scream this from the rooftops. People often think that palliative care is just end-of-life care but it's not just end-of-life care. Palliative care is whole-person, symptom-focused care for people with serious illness, and it's appropriate from diagnosis. So if you get diagnosed with a cancer, for example, even if you're trying to be cured, you probably have some symptoms that go along with this very serious illness. So you might be anxious, you might have issues of depression, you might have trouble sleeping. And then if you start getting treatment with chemo or surgery or radiation, you may have all kinds of symptoms that we can help with. So while the oncologist is focused on the cancer and making the cancer either go away or stay stable as long as possible, the palliative care doctor is focused on the human, the person, and how they are suffering and how we can relieve their suffering. Uh, full disclosure, I, I years ago, I wrote an article about PAs in palliative care, so I knew to ask that question. <laughs> it's so important because not only do, you know, lay people not know this, but physicians don't know this. So that's the, what I understand. Yeah. The way to really annoy a palliative care doctor is to say something like, it's too early for a hospitalized patient for palliative care. Because if you're in the hospital with something pretty bad, it's never too early for palliative care. Even it's if most of the time too late. Right. It's almost always too late. Exactly right. And so physicians really need to understand this because when you think about it, we are focused on helping people manage their symptoms, helping people cope better, and helping people make decisions, medical decisions that match with their values. Like, why would you not want that? Well, when when would that ever be inappropriate? So it the real change that has to happen to make the system work better, in my opinion, is for physicians to understand the value of early palliative care and get us on board earlier. I think there's some kind of a, it's not even a misconception, it's some kind of a, like, I can't quite phantom whether it's a, just a cultural issue or had a wrap of some sort, but there's a thinking in a hospital that if you call a palliative care 
care doctor that somehow you're going to die fast. Exactly. Like, it's magical like, thinking. Yes. Yeah. It's like, it's like, no, we're not going to call the doctor because like, oh no, it means we're giving up. It, it, there's a complete misunderstanding of the uh, actual fact that the moment you get palliative care doctor, most of the time patients end up living longer yes. because they're more comfortable. Correct. And certainly they live better and it just is such a great lock and key to work together with the physicians who are trying to fix the disease and the palliative physicians who are trying to help the patient cope better and suffer less. So I completely agree with you. It's weird, magical thinking. And, and physicians are also worried sometimes that the patients will get mad at them if they say palliative, that that means you don't care about me or you're that's not going to try to help me. And that's all totally wrong, like crazy wrong. And so it is part of my passion to try to teach physicians because patients are suffering because the physicians don't understand what palliative medicine is and therefore don't bring palliative doctors in early enough. And that's just that's just craziness. It doesn't have to be that way. I think I think the big component of this is the fact that I think doctors are humans. Yes. And you know, and often doctors don't really they have not often worked on their own issues of how are they handling the losses, how are they processing their own grievances. Yes. And I think there's a lot of projection on the, onto the patients in this situation. So I think, Dilly, this is kind of because both of us are so close in this and because we, in the field where we lose a lot of our patients, some of them become dear to us. In fact, the whole podcast idea came up after I... Uh, recently lost a patient of mine who basically at the age of close to 90 said, I'm done. Yeah. I'm going to stop eating and drinking. And I've known her for a long time. She almost was more like almost a friend. And even I had to sort of like, well, she didn't have anything end of life. None. Yeah. She just, her quality of life because of multiple chronic medical issues was such on top of the fact that her husband died about a year ago and she was done. Yeah. She was not depressed and she just wanted to go. And, 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 you know, I struggled with that. And I think at the end of the day, I, I had to reconcile and do some internal processing, but it triggered this idea that we don't process losses very well. Yeah. And that's, I think, so let's talk about this. I mean, maybe let's just start with how do you handle this? Like how, and, and, and what do you tell to docs who tell you what I just told you? It's such an important question because I think it brings up not only the well-being of the doctor, but I think what you said in the beginning is also true, which is that it affects how they care for patients. Because when we don't deal with our own stuff or when we see someone else's death as too painful for us to cope with, or in some cases as a, a failure, so if you're you know, trying, you're a physician who's trying to stop them from dying and then their disease progresses anyway, it can feel like a personal failure. And so that's a kind of grief also. So sometimes when a physician loses a patient, it's it's the kind of grief you're describing, like someone they really cared about that's that's, you know, close and almost a friend. And that hurts kind of in the way it hurts when you lose someone in your life who's not your patient. Okay. But there is also a component that I think is important for us just to highlight for a second of the grief of not being able to save someone. And that is a that's a little different. And so I think shy, the first thing is just to shine a light on all of these things because we don't really get taught 
that we can even feel grief about patients. That I never heard that in medical school ever. And most people just move on. Most physicians, you know, in their, they appear to just move on. Like someone dies, okay, now we have to go see the next person. And they may not know how to take time and space for that grief, just like you would take for if you had a family member who died. So the very first thing is just to acknowledge that this is grief. This is not, I had a bad day or I'm cranky. This is grief, like you lost a loved one, a friend, a beloved pet. This is grief. And so how do we manage grief in general? Step number one really is to allow yourself to feel it and make space to feel it. So if you immediately stuff it down because you've got more work to do and when you get home, there's the kids and the house and you just never make space for it, it lingers and it comes back up in other ways as any kind of repressed stress does. So thing number one is label. This is grief. I lost a patient who's dear to me and this is grief and I need to make space for grief. So what does that mean? That's different for different people. For some people, that means to feel it out loud and cry. For some people, that means to go for a run and really be with that person. For some people, that means do a ritual. Rituals are very important, like Mm -hmm. write something about the person, or if you're creative, make an art piece about the person. If you have pictures of the person, look at them or, or put them out if you want to you know, write their story out loud and read it to somebody. That's another ritual that you can do. For people who pray, you certainly can can bring in your um, spiritual or religious traditions and ask for care for that person on whatever is the next part of their journey. Some people play music. So I would think of it in the way that we think about grief for someone in our life. I think a lot of us have ideas about what we might do if some good friend died. What would what would we do to help ourselves feel it and process? So that's number one. Number one and two, acknowledge its grief and make space for the grief. And number three, I think, is to talk about it. Because sometimes in medicine, okay, people feel their feelings, but they do it secretly. You know, they go to the stairwell or they hold it together until they get home. And we don't often talk about it as physicians in this way, like, hey, I lost a patient and it's really hard for me. This has been kind of a hard week. It's very rare to hear a conversation like that, even in the intensive care unit where, you know, people are dying all the time. So I think talking about it with other physicians is important because it normalizes it. Otherwise, if we don't do that and we only can grieve in secret, then there's a little bit of a shame overlay, which is Mm -hmm. not, not appropriate. And I think for people in the palliative medicine field, we're maybe more open and comfortable with that. But I think many physicians who do lose patients but are not in the palliative medicine field may not have comfort to say things like that. Like, hey, I lost a patient and it was really hard. Can we talk about it over coffee for a few minutes? But it's really important to do that. Yeah. And also, you know, I don't think there's any structured spaces no. in, in, in what we do. We just don't um, I mean, unless you're in a hospice uh, or in palliative care team that specifically designs the space for this processing, most of the hospitals will never give time for something like this. You're right. And and you do, I think, if you're running a team, you should take it. So in the, the palliative team that I ran most recently, we did a couple things. Once a month in our interdisciplinary team meeting, 
we would um, have our mind-body specialist read out the names. She would ask for names. You know, we're, we're going to have a special moment for the, the patients that we've lost. And we actually allowed people to include people that they wanted special attention to. It could be people in their own life that they lost or people who were very sick or really struggling. She would write down the names as we said them, and then she would play the singing bowl for just a few minutes. It took maybe five minutes, but it was a really powerful moment where we, she would say their names out loud as she was playing the singing bowl, and we would sit with our eyes closed, just having a moment of reverence for these people. And it was so powerful, and anybody could do it. It took five minutes. Like, really, whatever team you're leading, you can find five minutes. It was really powerful, and I'm so glad that we did it. And then the other thing that we did was we had one of our nurse practitioners arranged for a a picture to be painted on the wall of a tree, and then we had leaves in a bucket that you could write down the names of our patients that we'd lost and stick it up onto the tree. And we we did that so that when whenever we walked by, it was a place, it was private, but it was a place that the clinicians walked by, we could remember them. And it just was an important ritual. For, ritual. It was an important ritual for us to feel like they didn't just disappear. You know, we cared for them and and really attended to them and then they were just gone. So they're all with us still on this big tree. So there's all kinds of rituals that you can do, but I think rituals like that, honoring rituals and then um, keeping with us rituals are both really helpful. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. We Even in our outpatient practice at the Center for Integrative Medicine, around the Day of the Dead every year, we will do a, a pretty long ceremony of about an hour and a half. Well, um, so throughout the year, we collect the little notes um, and the notes would say the name the passing time, if you know exact date. And then also, uh, sometimes we would in, even include a little bit of information about the patient. And then when we talk about each person, we, whoever remembers something, we will say those few words and then we'll also we'll ring um, like a little ceremonial um, singing bowl after, for, after three times after each name and each person mentioned and discussed. Um, and then when we were in person, we even would do a little, um, um, we would collect those uh, little notes and also we'll have an altar and then we'll either um, float this down a river or, or lately, last couple of times, I think we would kind of do a little ceremonial burn in the backyard. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. Um, so, yeah, well, I think, I think we underestimate grief not just for individual person but for the entire team yes especially and you know the palliative teams know about this and they do this day after day but especially teams that are not necessarily palliative uh, especially when you have periodic losses that are more catastrophic like somebody who's much younger and suddenly there is a heart attack or something or accident of some kind right when you're completely unprepared. And I think then it's even more important for the outpatient teams to do that. And and whatever the ceremony that they adopt, I think is not as essential as as, as having the capacity to come together as a team, process it as process it as a team. And 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 because that's also becomes that energy that that sort of being locked in there gets released. Yeah. And I think that the team can move forward and serve other patients a lot better too. A hundred percent. I completely agree with you because if you have a team that has had 
a ton of losses that are unprocessed, eventually people tend to become a little more distant, a little harder, and their empathy isn't as accessible to the next patients that come. And so this is like cleaning cleaning our emotional house in a way so that we're open for the next encounter. And mm-hmm. the other thing that what you said, I think, um, helps to happen is if you do it as a team, it normalizes talking about it. And then when there's an individual provider who's lost a very special patient, then the rest of the team might be more likely just to check in on them. You know, I had not that long ago lost two separate young patients who were I had been taken care of since they since had been taken care of since they were 27 and they both died at 30. And uh, multiple people on the team just checked in with me like, how are you doing? I know that, you know, you were really close to him and how's that going? And I think that's really important. And even if it's just a two minute conversation, it's really healing to have that. And talking Mm -hmm. about grief as a thing that we experience as clinicians in a team makes it just easier to talk about it one-on-one as people in the work context as well. What did you all find during COVID? Um, were were teams um, or colleagues coming up to you asking for help to help their colleagues and departments or or teams to to process the grief caused by COVID? Because you know you all got hit twice. You know you lost um, healthcare workers and then that you had departments that aren't used to losing patients lose patients. Yeah, you're right. And and I actually um, was part of a team that was frontline hospital-based palliative care during the first part of the pandemic. So our team was directly affected too. It was really hard. It was really hard. And so it was hard for our team. It was hard for the ICU. It was hard for the ER um, I wish I could say that, you know, all these people came to us for support, but really what actually happened is it felt a little like I imagine a, a war zone might feel and everybody was just kind of shell-shocked and just like one foot in front of the other, try to get to the next thing. So all, a little bit ironically, there was probably less touchy-feely stuff then than when it's when there's more space for it. Uh, interesting. I think... I think we did such a poor job as the whole community of the, of the healthcare providers in this that I think we're all going to experience prolonged PTSD from this. Yeah, um, there's no question. I think there's a lot, like I've seen some of my colleagues needing to take a prolonged breaks because they just couldn't really, like we had one clinician in our practice who basically could not step a foot in the hospital for six months after that. Yeah, I'm not surprised. You know, and wow. that's because in reality, you know, it wasn't just a load of work. It was no. a lack of support from the system to say, look, this is nuts. We need to reorganize the system. It's a topic that's completely ignored unless you particularly... And, and, and so, just FYI, we are in geriatrics and palliative, and we have the provider experience that. So, yeah. think about ICU teams. Yeah. Think about surgery. Think about any emergency kind of care during the first, specifically, year. The burnout rate, the, turn- the turnover, and the, and the sheer 
grievances that will stay with us for years to come, um, I think eventually we'll move past this. Eventually we'll forget about it, but it's still very raw. I completely agree. And I know this isn't the topic of today, but there also was a significant amount of moral injury experienced during that time. Right. You know, of it was no one's fault, but family members flipping out about not being able to come say goodbye and that screaming on the phone to us. And we had to say, no, I'm so sorry. The rules are you cannot see your loved one before they die. And some of these people were in their 30s, 40s, 50s. So it was really shocking and terrible. It was just really a terrible time. And I completely agree with you. At some point, I hope that there's some systematic way to support clinicians who experience that in any way, you know, the front line and also the the next and the next lines too it was tough on on everybody. Um, our team did offer to the ICU and the emergency department if they wanted us to come do you know some relaxation tools with them, and and they were just like we just can't you know we're too busy we're so sorry we can't do it right now. So yeah. it was almost a kind of just shut down and get through the next hour kind of situation. What's really sad to me to hear that is. If they had realized that if they had taken you up on your offer, they would have been in a better place then, possibly, but definitely been in a better place now. Yep. Yeah. 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 Agreed. So I think that this kind of grief and and PTSD happens, obviously, it's more visible in something like the early COVID times. But I do think it happens to people anyway. And, you know, I see you doctors who often see people in extremists and some of them nobody expected to die. I'm sure they experience PTSD. And I've also never really heard that talked about in medical school. So I think overall, helping physicians and, and nurses and nurse practitioners and aides and, you know, the folks who clean the rooms, like people who deal with this really difficult stuff, We probably should have a more systematic way to help people process their grief and trauma around seeing these really, really difficult things. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's let's move from uh, (laughs) this topic to uh, uh, let's let's talk something a bit more positive. So, Delay, you basically champion this whole principle of integrative palliative medicine and and talk to us a little bit about just general ideas, general principles, and also please talk to us about the the specifics of the work you've been doing in the last year or two. Sure. So uh, as you all well know, uh, integrative medicine is its own very robust field. And I started out actually in the world of integrative medicine, and I got into integrative medicine because I was a regular family doctor first. And what I found was all of these patients who had chronic complaints, but I couldn't find anything wrong. You know, they were tired, they had headaches, they couldn't sleep, but I looked for all the things and nothing, there was no blood test that was broken. They didn't have cancer. And so what I found just on my own by sharing with them what I would now consider complementary therapies or an integrative approach, things started getting better. And so this was early on, long ago, and I I thought, well, what is this? How come I didn't learn about this in medical school? And that was how I found my way to the integrative medicine world and for 10 years was the associate director of the Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Maryland Medical School. And so I was deeply ingrained in the integrative medicine world 
and at the same time was a hospice team medical director. And what I found in hospice really struck me, which was that some of the patients in hospice, not a small amount, a large amount of the patients in hospice seemed to be happier and more content than my family medicine patients had been. And that was the absolute upside down opposite of what I had been told in medical school, which was if you fix people's medical problems, then they will be happy. And it turned out, in my experience, the people who didn't really have a medical problem that I could find appeared to have all of these discomforts and were not so happy. And the hospice patients who were dying, clearly dying, seemed to be happier. And I was so struck by what on earth is that? And can I get that (laughs) before I have a, you know, a disease that lands me in hospice? And what I found in exploring with these patients was when you're faced with your mortality, often it makes you appreciate more what's in front of you and let go of the stupid things that don't matter, right? Release toxic situations from your life or try to work on your toxic thoughts that tell you how you're not good enough and focus on the things that you really care about that bring you joy. And when you do that, you do end up more joyful, even if you have an advanced disease. I was really struck by that. And then I found that I was in two different worlds. I was in the integrative medicine world on one side and in the hospice and palliative world on the other side, and I became board certified in hospice and palliative medicine. And it really struck me as I was doing both that they are kind of the same thing. So philosophically, they are really the same. The mind, body, spirit, care of the patient and family, that part is the same. But what I also found was that in the integrative medicine world, there wasn't a lot of attention paid to people with advanced serious illness or end-of-life conditions. There was more of a focus, which is great, on prevention of disease, wonderful, but sometimes people have actual disease and they need to be cared for too. And so I was getting this interest in this group of people who had severe and significant disease But when I looked in the palliative care world, there was really almost no talk of complementary modalities at all. So they understood the mind, body, spirit care of the patient and family. They understood that if you have pain, for example, if you don't manage their depression and anxiety, it'll be harder to treat the pain. They got all those really important concepts, but then their tools and their toolbox were medicines. Mm, And, And that just seemed like a crazy loss. Like you, you guys actually get it. And then there's all these other tools over here in the integrated medicine box. Why are you not using those tools? And so the practice that I started was to put, sorry, the practice that I started was to put those two together and it was fabulous, really just fantastic. So it's the palliative medicine approach, mind, body, spirit, care of the patient and family, people with serious illness, using plenty of medicines, procedures, but also all of the complementary medicine tools, acupuncture, mind-body medicine, energy medicine, food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so putting those two things together, which seems to me so obvious that somebody should have been talking about this for a long time, I can't really find anybody talking about it. So I decided to make this box and stand in it. And I think it's so important to teach people who care for patients with serious illness. So yes, palliative doctors, but also 
geriatricians, oncologists, rheumatologists, cardiologists, neurologists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, people with advanced disease should have the palliative tools and they should have the integrative approach with the complementary medicine tools. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you made that connection because sometimes it's just a matter of somebody being up above looking down at all the different pieces and saying, oh, let's work smarter, not harder. Yes, exactly. And when I was at the University of Maryland Center for Integrative Medicine, we had an inpatient integrative medicine team, but the palliative team was separate. And it was great. And it gave a lot of value. But, you know, if you have severe cancer pain with bone mets, the singing bowl is not going to take away all your pain, right? You need morphine too. So that the fact that we could only do the complementary medicine tools but had to wait for somebody else to bring the medicines, that also wasn't ideal. And that's why it feels to me like putting these two things together is so crucial because many, many, many patients need not just a complementary approach, you know, with, with acupuncture, mind-body tools, et cetera, or medicines, they need them all, particularly if they have advanced illness with significant symptoms. We should bring all the tools to the party. Do you know what I just realized? What? You are someone who is a groundbreaker when it comes to integrative palliative, uh, palliative, is it integrative palliative medicine? Yep. Integrative palliative medicine. Okay. And then we have Misha, who is the, a groundbreaker in integrative geriatrics. A hundred percent. And palliative, to be honest with you, when people ask me who else in the country is doing this, the only name I come up with is Misha. Well, you know, it's, it's fascinating that you not just gave this a name, but you gave this a comfortable face. I, I, I think the reason more of us have not been aggressively vocal about it, and, you know, I use it in practice all the time, but I wasn't, like, talking about it everywhere. I think, I think you're right. I think there's this sense of, oh, we're an integrative. Like, we keep people away from death and dying. Yes. And, you know, the, the, it, it, it's almost funny joke-like statement, but I see this, especially in, in and I'm going to be frank, it's okay. Uh, you know, like in certain functional medicine and anti-aging, there is this kind of a taboo. Like, yep. no, you can't get like, do do what we tell you and then you're going to live forever. Like literally. Exactly. Exactly. That, that's, right. that's sometimes what it feels like. Yes. And, 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 you know, maybe, uh, maybe that's really the only reason. And I'm glad you're not just stood up and said, hey, let's do it. But you're doing it in a very light way. Uh, and I hope that our listeners will get to tune to some of your podcasts and and, and some of the work you do um, and also look at the actual institute, which I hope you can tell us next about and, and really realize that this doesn't have to be a heavy topic of, you know, just grief. And, and there's, there's a lot of really... Um, light yeah. and yet very important. And actually, the reason I do what I do in a way, maybe, is that I want to process all these things that I have to process anyway, not when I'm 70 or 80, but now. Yep. Exactly. And and I, I'm so glad you said that because I find this a very light and happy topic. And I know that sounds insane, but I'll I'll hearken back to what I mentioned about the hospice patients. When I talk to patients, 
we have a great time and we're focusing on, you know, I always hated that person. So you cut her out of your life. Like what makes you happy today? And palliative care is really about life and living. And if you're nauseous, you can't enjoy your grandkids. If you have pain, you won't take your dog for a walk. It's about fixing all your symptoms so that you can find joy in today. Because here's another bit of magical thinking, right? If you're sitting across from somebody on hospice, you both think that the person on hospice is going to die first, but you don't know that. You don't know. You don't know that. You drive a car. You have no idea. And so people sometimes say to me, well, how can I live life now that I know I'm going to die? And I always it's take them. I always take it's a moment. Honor. Well, who's going to die? Everybody. I'm going to die. Misha's going to die. Uh, Janet's going to die. Karen's going to die. Everyone. We know that already. We've lived our whole life knowing that we want to live our life today and then someday we're going to die, but we don't know exactly when. And so we're not really going to spend a whole lot of time thinking about that. We're going to figure out what we want to do right now. And it's the same process. And I know it's more challenging when someone has given you a difficult diagnosis, but it's not a new skill. We all know we're going to die. Then we put that on the shelf and then we go out to lunch. And you can do yep. the same thing no matter what some doctor has told you that you have. Yeah. So I find it a happy specialty, actually. <laughs> well, that's, that's, the, that's the funny part in a way, because everybody presumed that palliative care is all happy and difficult. And in some way, once you get enough uh, experience, it actually is a lot lighter than people realize. Yeah. Um, you know, I always wonder though, and maybe you can speak to this. Sorry, we're going a little off tangent. I promise Janet, I won't do it, but Janet, at least it's not cannabis. So we're okay. <laughs> well, I, the only thing I always was, uh, and maybe that's because I'm, I'm, I never did pediatrics at all because, you know, I'm an internist, but that's one topic where I find it may be a bit over my top because I never really had experiences there, but like palliative pediatricians, or, or palliative um, uh, pediatricians who work in palliative medicine and, and see kids dying probably mostly with cancer. Yeah. That to me is like, can you speak to that just a little bit? Like, do you had, ex have you had experience with this and, and is it any different and, and how do we um, make this lighter and more and better? Yeah. Full disclosure, this is not my area of expertise. And at one point when I was working for the hospice, they asked did they? Did we, the physicians, want them to add the new pediatric hospice patients to the main, all the regular teams, or did we want them to have a separate team? I had young kids at the time, and I felt like I personally couldn't do it. But that is not a reflection of the field. It was just a reflection of my abilities at the time. But here's mm -hmm. the concept that I think is important, because even in adult palliative care, we have a fair amount of people in their 20s which is maybe not the same as a child, but it's still pretty terrible. True. And, and the basic way in my mind to cope with that is that this person has this disease, whether I want to look at it or not. And I can either let them deal with it on their own, or I can walk beside them on this journey and try mm -hmm. to lighten their load a little bit. And so for me, when I think of it that way, I think, of course I wouldn't want them to do it alone, right? It, it's not like if I don't look at it, it's not real. They still have to deal with it. They can't escape it. So walking beside someone on their journey 
is extraordinarily helpful. And the more you do it, the more you'll hear from people how helpful it was. And then you don't put it in the box of, I failed because I couldn't save them or I couldn't fix it because it's not, you know, you can't fix it. That's not our job to fix it. And even for oncologists, as the example you gave, where it is their job to fix it, they know that they can't always fix it. And so as soon as we know we can't fix it, we have to change our goal, not from trying to fix it or stop the person from dying, but from walking beside them on their path. And I literally do an imagery myself of that, of walking beside them, because that's always the right thing to do, right? If you have a loved one who has a difficult situation, you walk beside them and you say, how can I help? And do you want to talk about it? Or do you want to not talk about it? Or, you know, can I carry some of this burden for you in some way? So for me, that image is really key to the work that I do, is imagining walking beside someone on their difficult journey. And if you weren't doing it, they're walking alone. And so the loving part, the caring part is to walk beside them. Well, Julia, tell us about the institute you started and and sort of what have you been doing with other health practitioners? Um, I know, I I think I I gave one talk on cannabis, but I see a lot of other experts that have been starting to work with you. So just go over the, like, what what is it and, um, you know, what's going on there? Sure. So my goal is to transform the care of patients with complex and serious illness. And if if you don't mind, I'll take a two-second detour into my own experience, which is my daughter, when she was, one of my daughters, when she was 12, had a significant injury with a lot of pain. And we went to both conventional doctors and an integrative medicine doctor. And the message we got from the integrative medicine doctor, unfortunately, was kind of what you said before, which like, you know, just stop eating sugar and then all your problems will go away, which was, of course, thoroughly not helpful and actually saying negative things about the conventional plan was hurtful to my daughter. And so I saw that just doing the integrative approach alone, if the message is, you know, just have turmeric and don't eat processed foods and then all your problems will go away and you'll live forever, that that's not helpful for people who have actual real things that that are chronic or serious or potentially life-limiting. And so the need to put those two things together was how I decided to create this Institute for Integrative Palliative Medicine. And I think of it as palliative in the broad sense. So not end of life, although that's a part of it, but anybody facing a serious illness or a complex condition that's just not going away so that we can bring both the the conventional medicine tools, medicines, et cetera, and the complementary medicine tools and handle it in an integrative way. And so my feeling is that this needs to be approached from three arms. One is to train physicians, because if physicians don't get this, it's not going to happen in the real clinical encounter. So that's where I'm starting by training physicians. I do think another arm that's important will be to train patients or lay people as well in this concept that palliative care is this symptom-focused care for people with serious illness, not just end of life, and here's all the tools we can bring to it. And then third, I do want to train um, hospices and healthcare organizations that treat this population. So those are the three arms of the Institute for Integrative Palliative Medicine. I'm starting with physicians. So right now I have a course that's coming up very soon. Um, Registration actually closes in two days. If anyone's interested, they should reach out to me for physicians on 
integrative symptom management. So that's basically what palliative care is. But if you say palliative care, people think that it's end-of-life care. So really, I'm it is symptom management. So I'm talking about integrative symptom management. And my my big goal is that a thousand physicians will understand how this works, will have these tools, will bring it into their outpatient clinics and their inpatient environments and into their residency programs, and it will spread. And this will just be a thing that everybody does, that they learn in medical school, that they understand, and it will improve the care of patients with serious and complex illness. I think that's great. And that is all the time we have for today. Dilia, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope we'll uh, talk to you some more in upcoming years when your institute takes off and you'll give us some updates. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks Thanks for listening. The Office of Integrative Medicine and Health produces the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast with funds from your donations. Your generosity allows us to raise awareness of the benefits of integrating whole person care, including evidence-based complementary therapies, into healthcare broadly. Help us continue to grow the podcast by making a tax-deductible donation on our website, smhs.gwu.edu slash OIMH. Click the Give Now button while you're there. Sign up for our free monthly newsletter for even more evidence-based content, including free webinars.